Hey y'all, this week's film is Assault on Precinct 13 as well as its remake. Aaron and I recorded this episode back in early April as the key piece of our siege month of June. As we recorded this before the police murder of George Floyd and the ensuing protests around the world, we do not reference the protests at all. We even reference how massively overfunded police departments are in 2020, armed with high-end military gear that they get to use on the American public, but do not mention any specifics about the current protests. That's because they hadn't happened yet. The conversation about police abuse of black people in America has exploded since then. This country has always had a white supremacy problem, and the output of that is the frequent glorification of cops as heroes in our media, which has real-world consequences. We believe this movie should still be discussed because it's specifically about America's fear of the other. Whether or not this tale of a multiracial group of cops and criminals joining up to fend off attackers contributes to the ultimate problem is up to you. But if you're game for this discussion, I think you'll find there's more to the movie than rote fear-mongering. However, due to the timing, it was not our focus in this episode. Instead, it largely focuses on John Carpenter's power as a filmmaker. Despite that, we want to be crystal clear where we stand. Abolish the police and Black Lives Matter. With love, Pete Naren. I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ryan Boland. And we love to watch. We love to watch wants to know. Got a smoke? How's it going? How are you guys doing? No, no. Yeah, that's new. Nothing. We just burned uh, an hour. <laughs> we yeah, we talked for an hour before this episode started, so I think we're really we're generally out of things to talk about. We mostly talked about how hungry we were for ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So true. Um, if we were in the unrelated. green room, the Nazis would have murdered us for not coming out of the green room and performing our set. Uh, yeah, because that's where they have to murder people. But that's a spoiler mm-hmm. for next week uh, when we're doing the movie Green Room. But I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete we already did this at the beginning. I don't know why. I'm Ryan Bullen. <laughs> and we continue. We have yet to stop loving to watch. And this week, uh, it's our second week of Under Siege Month, uh, not featuring the movie Under Siege or Under Siege 2 Dark Territory, um, but featuring other movies where there's sieges. Sieges. There's a, uh, sieges. Is the plural sieges? Uh, the French is sieges. JC and we are doing I think one of the main reasons for this month which is John Carpenter's second movie 1976 Assault on Precinct 13 and uh, because Peter and I both had fond memories of it we also decided to watch 2005's remake uh, Assault on Precinct 13 uh, we'll save most of the, the Assault on Precinct 13 remake talk for the last, like, 30 minutes or so, just because this isn't a compare and contrast. We want to give the original its due. It's a fantastic um, action movie featuring a uh, toddler side. Um, <laughs> what's, what's like when a 10-year-old dies? Is that 
It's not infanticide. <laughs> a- adolescicide? No, I think, think a little. That's that'd be later. Preteenicide. Preteenicide. Yeah, featuring preteenicide. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we're uh, so it's funny. So we oh, oh, and we're joined by Ryan Bolin, who is uh, Peter's best friend, my mortal enemy. And I took um, way too many notes on the new one. God damn. <laughs> I have. You know what's funny? I have way more notes on the new one than I do. I think on I do the original, yeah. and I and I think it's just because I had to stop writing notes because I had to be like, "Look, we're not covering this movie. I don't need to comment on anything. It's just kind of a coda where we can talk about how you know the yeah. original, the, the fact that this It'll movie be as got long as a we remake. Need to, we need to get into it because I think I, I would like for it to be a coda. Yeah, not compare and contrast as much though. Uh, just talking about what it does differently than the original. Yeah. Original needs smiley. Okay, <laughs> I think it's be, yeah because you know yeah it's you're 100 percent right. When I was watching the original, there was a lot of like oh yeah this part this part rules oh this yeah. part also rules, uh, and then the other one you're like okay jaw <laughs> yeah oh jaw rules still alive and talking way too much it's it's rough. Oh. Big, big talking fan in this movie. Yeah. Big talking fan. Sorry, um, I didn't mean to dive right into the new... Oh, we're not going to talk too much about the new <laughs> one. Let's, yeah, look. Fun fact. Jaw Rule is in it. He went from Too Fast, Too Furious. No, he's he's not in Too Fast. He's, nope. they, they got rid of him, number one. He's in the first Fast and the Furious, who they then replaced with Ludacris in the second one. Um, and then, yeah, he's like, what am I going to do? I guess I'll be in Assault on Precinct 13. And now he's nowhere besides the Firefest. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Firefest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ja Rule now, I, 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 I think I like loved Ja Rule songs when I was in junior high. Ooh, um, maybe course. I just loved Mystical songs and now I'm confusing it with Ja Rule. Um, Possible. I don't think anyone loved Ja Rule songs. Um, they loved Aaliyah songs that Ja Rule was on. <laughs> it was uh, him and Ashanti. Ashanti, yeah. Shanti, yeah, that's what yeah. They had like there was back in the day when they would. I mean, not, I'm sure they have now, but like the like hip hop duet type songs. So you'd like you'd have to know those ones, man. Those were the jams. Those those were the slow dance. Those were the kind of slow dances at the high school and the dances and stuff like that. But yeah, Ja Rule was aggressively bad at rapping and singing and everything else. And so like even where Ashanti, where two, I don't know where she is. She was great. Um, very beautiful th- singing voice. They're Long time like, listener. Who's yeah, who's this guy that randomly barks in the middle of the? You know, oh, yeah, that's, that's and that then and accurate. then yeah, and then um, Eminem was like the health inspectors. Like even if the restaurant was beloved, he could shut that shit down. <laughs> ja Rule, like I guess you know, had the a spat with Fifty Cent. Yeah, uh, and and yeah, and then so yeah, Ja Rule disappeared, and then he reemerged. But when I was watching Assault on Precinct. 13, I'm like, a lot of times when you see those people that were, like, big stars for five years, and you're watching them when they're in that, like, I'm I'm, I'm a star's time frame, your mind goes, I wonder, like, should I go to Wikipedia? What are they up to? And as I'm watching it, I was like, John Rule, what's he? Oh, that's right. I watched two documentaries last year. Oh, yeah. Years as himself mm-hmm. in Fire Fiasco. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is our seventh John Carpenter movie. Uh, I think. Sixth? We did a whole month, which was four. And then we did The Thing. We did Halloween. And we did, we did Halloween. Mouth of Madness. Uh, oh, shit. No, I mean, In the Mouth of Madness was part of the month that we did. 
Oh, okay, yeah. There you go. Yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, this is our seventh John Carpenter movie. He only did, like, 14 movies. So we're we gonna... still haven't done Big Trouble. We still haven't done Escape from New York. Um, have you done They Live, or? Have um, not done They Live. Um, we did we Prince, Prince of Darkness. Darkness. We just, in the month that we did, we did, like, uh, the John Carpenter B-sides. Um, Fog, yeah. Ghost of which, Mars. Which ones haven't you done? We did Ghost of Mars. <laughs> we did Ghost of Mars and the Mouth of Madness. Uh, Escape from L.A. I was about to say, L.A., Christine. Yeah. And we did, yeah, I think there's some that we probably won't do. Like, I don't have a, the ward is just fucking terrible. I've yeah, never decided to do the ward. Um, and, uh, like, I'm not a huge fan of vampires. I don't. I don't really see a world where we decide to do memoirs of an invisible man. Um, yeah, yeah. But but like I yeah like Starman like we're gonna do the rest besides all those ones I mentioned. We'll probably do the Masters of Horror episodes he did. We're gonna at some do point. Cigarette Burns and Pro Life. Yeah. It's so it, let's come on. We're probably gonna do his Elvis movie. I almost said Elvis documentary. <laughs> we're gonna do his Elvis doc. <laughs> um we're gonna do someone's watch we're not gonna do someone's watching me but uh yeah i mean he uh he's he's good i like him peter what do you think about john carpenter uh, uh john carpenter is a uh, long time running my favorite director um the thing is my favorite movie of all time for a period of time it was escape from new york um no other movies have really butted in uh into, into con- contention there the attachment I have to especially, like, this era of John Carpenter is so strong. So, like, th- this movie begins with just normal, you know, opening credits, no prologue, just straight to the credits, straight to the John Carpenter synth line. Because he, obviously, this was when he was doing the music for the, the movies. Immediately. I was going to say. Like, I have it in my head. I watched it a week ago. It's so good. And we'll get there in the actual movie, but... The moment it happens, uh, what, what, when this red text on this black, this red text on this black background and his, uh, his synth chords start coming in, his keyboard chords start coming in. I was like, I'm like, oh, I'm synced to this movie's rhythms immediately. And it took essentially an extremely primitive keyboard and two colors. <laughs> uh, it was so funny though when I read, uh, where he like he basically said he stole the riff from the immigrant song by Led Zeppelin, <laughs> and once I heard that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I hear that loud and clear. <laughs> you did, John. You did. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it's still really good. Uh, because a the immigrant song, good song. Immigrants, good. They get the job done. Um, and- Hugh Grant, Grant's good. What? Don't worry, you can edit that out. <laughs> well, actually, I want to break Hugh Grant. Yeah, immigrant Hugh Grant. Oh, I got it. <laughs> a couple years ago, like four or five years ago, I'm like, hey, there's some big John Carpenter movies I've never seen. I'm going to watch all of his theatrical stuff. So there's only like three or four that I'd never seen. Uh, one of them was this. One of them was The Fog. Uh, the Ward was one. And maybe that was it. Um, maybe there's one more I'm forgetting. But um, I I own this movie since I was in college. It came in a two pack at Best Buy with Dreamscape, another movie I never seen. <laughs> I also um, uh, also owned that two pack because for a long time I was a John Carpenter fan, but couldn't find this one. And then it was like a Sam's Club special uh, to get like both the movies for nine dollars. <laughs> the disc sucks because uh, I, I know because I watched it in the last few years. But uh, so it was nice to watch on Blu Ray. This time, it looks the Scream amazing. Factory restoration is is crisp. 
yeah, it looks it looks great. But it was um, I agree, Peter. Like even watching it for the first time a few years ago and being already uh, you know a huge John Carpenter fan, the second that red text appears on the screen, it's like, oh yeah, no, this is good. I'm I'm into this. I would ask Ryan. So Ryan, this is it's funny because you mentioned in the Mouth of Menace, we've done seven John Carpenter movies. This is your second appearance on a John Carpenter. Um, but I suppose in the Mouth of Madness, we probably talked a little bit about later John Carpenter for you. Uh, what's your, I mean, what is your history with, with like these kind of the more less known, but, um, you know, the type of John Carpenter movies that, uh, film nerds and genre fans end up eating up after they get through the Halloweens and the things and all that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, as as real fans of the podcast, you know, we'll remember the July 4th episode in 2017. Um, we listed off our top 10 John Carpenters. And so me and Aaron had Assault on Precinct 13 at number nine and uh, Peter had it at number five. So interesting. So uh, I just thought that was kind of interesting that Peters was significantly higher up there. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I saw this movie. What what were my other, what was 10, one, first of all, I forgot we did that, so I'm not a real fan of this podcast. Oh, no, I, I just happened to, so my dad had asked for a specific episode to listen to, and I wanted to screen it beforehand, and then I was enjoying it, so I listened to it all the way through. <laughs> but but I did jot down the full list, Aaron. If you want to know your list, I'm curious. I've, I've yeah, what? I mean, me. we're doing a John Carpenter movie that was three years ago at this point. Yeah. What what were our lists? I, I'm curious if things would change. I think I I had just a couple years before that had gotten done with watching all the theatrical ones, so I I had seen all of them. Should I go? Should I just do a quick like top five? I, I want to hear the whole thing. Let's you right. jot it down. Just you don't have to do drum rolls, but go like one through ten for all three of us. All right, Aaron's one through ten. Ten, Prince of Darkness. Nine, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Eight, Escape from New York. Seven, Escape from L.A. Six, Into the Mouth of Madness. Five, The Fog. Four, They Live. Three, Big Trouble in Little China. Two, Halloween, and number one, The Thing. The Thing, yeah. Uh, I would change. So I'll, I'll say this: I would yeah. change. I would put in the mouth of madness at three. I have just between rewatching it for the show. I've rewatched it a couple times. It's weirdly been on my mind with all this pandemic stuff. For in the mouth, I think I think that's the right order. Minus, I would bump up in the mouth of madness. Weirdly, I think my. I mean. Not jump. I think mine would go up, and Mouth of Madness is up a little bit for me. I after listening to the podcast and we talked about it, I genuinely wanted to watch the movie again, and almost did before, like even this podcast itself. But I made myself it's, watch. It's the one movie. of the few uh, movies that we've done on this podcast um, where I, I in my back in the back of my head, I want to do a month sometime where it's just movies we've already done that we want to talk about more, <laughs> more about and like like in Spoiler the like alert, possession we're do that is, on Christmas. <laughs> yes, but uh that's that is not one of the movies that I wanted I need to talk more about. It just works with something else that we're going to do. But like Possession in the Mouth of Madness, um there's another one that I I thought of recently where it's like it's not even that i feel like we missed stuff it's just i want an excuse to watch it and talk about it with peter again sam neil yeah yeah sam uh, neil all right so what's what's actor. your guys's list uh yeah yeah ryan what, what do you got for uh for me i guess and let's stop with yours you were 
You were uh, 10, The Fog, 9, They Live, 8, Into the Mouth of Madness, 7, Prince of Darkness, 6, Big Trouble in Little China, 5, Assault on Precinct 13, 4, Christine, 3, Escape from New York, 2, Halloween, 1, The Thing. I'd stand by that today. Um, I maybe would shuffle I, Christine like is six- way too high for you. For you. Uh, no, I love Christine. Uh, I fucking love Christine. I, I, I feel like we're, we're, I, now I remember having this conversation on the other podcast, so we don't need to go into like, yeah. <laughs> Christine is also a movie that I didn't get when I first watched. I was like, what is this stupid killer car movie? And then I watched it again through the scope of both like Stephen King and John Carpenter and how they react to their past. And I was like, oh, no, this is like a five-star movie. It's gorgeous. The performances are insanely good. Like, John Carpenter was like, all right, I'm just going to make, like, low-key make one of the best Stephen King adaptations in a very crowded field. So would you change anything you said? You said you would move what? I maybe shuffle I maybe shuffle Big Trouble and uh, In the Mouth of Madness. It, I have a very – after we recorded that episode, like, I have a very strong affinity for In the Mouth of Madness. Like, it's – it's uh, that movie also went from, like, a two-star – the first time I saw it to a five star at some point. <laughs> oh, that used to be. I don't. I forget if we talked about this on that show. <laughs> We're basically re-recording it now, so my dreams are all coming true. Uh, it was on my like first version of my top twenty-five movies of all time I made in high school. So oh, cool. So you were yeah. right. Yeah. Um, yeah, Ryan. What was your list like? My list was ten Ghost of Mars, which is why I remembered to bring it up earlier. <laughs> uh, nine Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Eight Big Trouble in Little China. Seven, Escape from L.A., six, Christine, five, Into the Mouth of Madness, four, Escape from New York, three, Halloween, two, They Live, one, The Thing. I was, I do remember being happy you had Escape from L.A. on your list. I loved it. I've only seen it once and it is, it's a good time. So good. It feels uh, appropriate that we have Ryan back on. We didn't know. That wasn't the plan here, but I'm glad that that, that happened. So, Ryan, uh, would you change anything on your list? I want to say that I'd put Into the Mouth... I think I might switch Into the Mouth Madness and Escape from New York, honestly. I think that Into the Mouth Madness might be four for me. Yeah, it really... It sticks with you. Like, I want to push it up. It's also like an extremely heady, psychologically uh, bothering movie. In that same breath, incredibly fun. Like, all of the characters are so fun and funny in that movie, despite the fact that the <laughs> all of the subject matter is heavy as shit. We did so much Lovecraft last summer, and I read so much Lovecraft last summer, and I do still stand by the fact that, like, the best adaptation of Lovecraftian mythos is In the Mouth of Madness. That, like, I think that's also why it, like, I've just been... I've been mainlining Lovecraft, so how could I not constantly be thinking about this fucking movie that's like the, you know, it's not Lovecraft per se, but it is, it's taking all that stuff into like, and and creating something new with it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great movie. That's our, that's our redo of In the Mouth of Madness, same guest. Uh, Ryan, <laughs> do you have anything to promote? Uh, no, I don't. We will now start the Assault of Precinct 13 episode. Actually, so we have so much to get into. We have two movies. We're going to cut to to the midway point here shortly. I think, though, so we didn't talk about it much last week when we did Rio Bravo, which, you know, this is Siege Movie Month. And this, there's, there's just, as we said last week, there's actually surprisingly not that many movies that really, um, that fall under a true Siege uh, movie where, like, 
they're and and this is kind of the prototype like this is what i would use as an example they are trapped in an area they have waves of enemies coming in it's like uh you know the level in resident evil 4 or countless other like horde modes or something in video games where you stay in a location you're you're in the boots of the people that are under siege yeah and unlike you know Resident Evil 4, if as you kill people, you don't get more ammo, you usually get less in the movies. Because, uh, <laughs> they're down not, to like two shells at the end of this movie. Yeah, they're like down to shells um, like immediately, uh, which is great. Like they are and it, and it and it, there's a lot of quiet moments. Um, but anyways, so like this is the prototype. I think it was a no brainer that Green Room like really matches this closely. And then we, you know, we're giving a chance to VFW, which I don't think at this point, Peter, either of us have seen yet. Uh, um, no, that'll be that'll be a, uh, a rare. Um, it's a movie that I love the director uh, and it's very new. And mm-hmm. uh, it, the director constantly talks about in interviews like Assault on Precinct 13, Green Room. Like he talks about all the the sort of more modern takes on it. So I think it'll fit the mold perfectly. Yeah. So so the reason that we did Rio Bravo last week as we talked about is that like um, even though Assault on Precinct is really like the the quintessential – siege movie that a lot of movies borrowed from it it is john carpenter was not just an amazing like director he he is the velvet underground of movie directors who like made all these albums that all these other like genre directors like oh i'm gonna make my assault on precinct 13 i'm gonna make my halloween um he he just like had these very like simplistic ideas he shot them cleanly um he you know he made them very compelling he had these scores that were like palpably different than a lot of um other things that were going on and he just made all these archetype movies like when you yeah. think of like escape from new york or halloween or solemn precinct 13 they're they're different genres but they all they feel like I mean, how many fucking movies took from Escape from New York? How many movies took from Halloween? How many movies <laughs> took from Assault? Like, there's so many. So, but so Assault on Precinct 13 so many made bad sense. movies, notably. But bad movies, but good yeah. movies, like not even remakes, just like, oh, I'm going to do like a John Carpenter vibe. And that's that's been going on now. Like, It Follows is not a John Carpenter-like movie. It's not a remake. It's not taking his ideas. But there's a reason why it was like this feels like a John Carpenter movie because it's taking like a premise and then it's just cleanly following that premise throughout with like these – a certain camera style and a certain way to communicate fear and stuff like that. And like and music as well on top of that for – Yeah. That yeah. movie. And an understanding that less is more. Having uh, a set of – a small effective set pieces is better than having a, a hundred uh, stimuli yep. – exploding set pieces yeah so a hundred percent and that's why like so assault on precinct 13 was kind of the germ of this month really wanting to do green room was the second part and then you know but what have we heard forever from assault on precinct 13 it was something i knew about assault on precinct 13 before i had seen the movie probably by like 10 or 15 years that it was John Carpenter wanted to make a western. He wanted to make re- he wanted to remake Rio Bravo, and but he could, didn't have the money for that. That would have been expensive. So he basically lifted Rio Bravo, and he made a modern day LA version of Rio Bravo. Now we didn't talk about this last week because why would we? Because we're on the Solemn Precinct Thirteen. 
It is. Maybe we did talk about it a little. We haven't recorded it, to be honest. But we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about it here. Uh, <laughs> one of them. It'll get cut out of one of them, which is more compelling. Um, but it is amazing. Peter, I don't think either of us had seen Rio Bravo. Right? We probably, we probably talked about that last week. In theory, I would know that. Um, it's amazing how not like Rio Bravo this movie is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Rio Bravo is a two and a half hour, very character driven. As you know, because we talked about it all last week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say cumbersome, but it's a very it's a, it's a very long movie. It was accused of being overlong in certain reviews. We talked about it last week. Um, yeah. But the point is that that this movie doesn't actually feel like Rio Bravo that much. Um I think John at all. Carpenter. I think John Carpenter said, uh, "Oh, I was inspired by Rio Bravo. I was inspired by Rio Bravo." What he really meant was he was inspired by the economy of filmmaking of Howard Hawks. And I think what he was really inspired by was Thing from Another World, which is a small set of characters in cramped little quarters having conversations about the about the beast, and then. Uh, the fucking beast bursts into the room. Like, I feel like he secretly was was more inspired by thing from another world. But he was like, well, I want to make a, I wanted to make this as a Western because he did. He wanted to make Assault on Precinct 13 as a Western um, and then essentially couldn't afford it. But he actually like he actually was in good shape. Right. Like, so we'll use this to talk about. It. So he makes Dark Star, which is the student film with Dan O'Bannon. Right. It's his, it's his calling card film. It's his calling card movie. And some financiers are like, dude, you're great. Like, we'll give you $100,000, make whatever you want. So he had total control over this movie. And that's like, that's a, 1975, you get that offer? Like, $100,000 is, you know, a million dollar budget to go do whatever script you write? That's like the dream of an independent 70s filmmaker. So it's not a question of like, he had trouble making his next movie, get his, getting his next movie made. He didn't. He had total creative control. Yeah. He had he money had a budget. to do it. He just, yeah, he just didn't have enough to, like, um, spend on all the sets and costume, <laughs> horse trainers, like, all the things that it would take to make a Western. I watched a making of little thing on the, the Blu-ray, um, and I, I don't typically watch special features, to be honest, because usually it's fluffy bullshit. Um, commentary tracks is really where you get the good stuff. Um, yeah. But, uh, and, and on a commentary track, uh, John Carpenter said some, he made a joke essentially um sorry let me take a step back um he on a uh post screening q a from 2002 someone asked him that question well you're so associated with westerns why didn't you make a actual western and and he says man can you picture just like after every shot just cleaning up horse shit (laughs) and i was like yeah man like that's that's a pretty good answer to like uh a question you probably get asked all the time because like i remember reading interviews with him growing up and he would be like oh i would love to have made this as a western uh vampires in particular uh is a is a bad movie um it's a movie i have almost no affinity for it stars a monster um and Who, who's but, who's the star in that one? I don't. Uh, James, James Woods. He's a, oh, he's okay. a recent. He's a recent monster. Yeah, but sure. he's like, hey, I gotta make up for lost time. Yeah, I mean, um, he probably was a monster back then, but he's just. I guess now we know because of Twitter. Uh, well, who's who's David Cross's wife? Amber. 
Amber Tamblyn. Tamblyn. Amber Tamblyn shares a story about being sixteen and and James Woods. Oh kind of yeah, her friend up like yeah. James Woods. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, okay, I do remember reading about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, he. Uh, anyways, uh, Vampires was also a movie that he wanted to make more of a western out of, but like he just didn't have the budget to do that sort of sweeping scale. So, he, uh, so many of his movies end up having a sort of. Um, western aesthetic wide open shots this beautiful panoramic wide open shots uh characters saying very little acting like cowboys without the hats but he never made a a true proper western and he sort of lamented it in some earlier interviews but by the time he got to 2002 he just made a joke out of it he was like yeah i didn't want to clean up horse shit i i do buy the theory again this is not uh collaborated or corroborated it's not it's not stop drop collaborated and listened it's not corroborated by uh any actual statements but i do get the feeling that like in the same way that a movie that you see a lot of the time gives you a feeling and like oh it feels like these people are trapped in this town right with limited resources and no friends and everywhere they go there's people trying to kill them like that that sensibility and that feeling that the movie gave him made it feel feel like this Assault on Precinct 13 was him re- not remaking it necessarily, but basically like transposing it. It's not the movie itself, yeah. it's not the plot, but that it, it is effective in the fact that those people feel trapped in a location um, while they're while they're while they're fighting for um, while they're fighting for survival. And then, of course, the other big influence on this movie, which is, I feel, much more recognizable, yeah. <laughs> but gets talked about last, is Night of the Living Dead. And he, like, he mentioned that later, but I think at the time it was cooler to admit that you were riffing on a uh, late 50s Western than it was to admit that you A were horror movie that came out five years ago. <laughs> the, yeah, the biggest horror movie of all time that just come out. Yeah, because this... And I remember when I first bought the movie, even, that I um, thought it was a zombie movie um, because <laughs> it was described in reviews that I was reading, why, which why I picked it up, is like John Carpenter's zombie movie. So, I didn't realize that that was like metaphorical zombies or whatever. <laughs> like, it feels like zombies because it's fa- nameless and faceless uh, mobs they attacking- don't speak. They don't speak much like, yeah, much like Gwen Stefani. Boy, yeah, there's no good gang member that they convert to their side, right? There's no, yeah, there, there's no moment of, of arbitration. There's no moment, there's no actually Lord Humongous moment like in Road Warrior, um, which Road Warrior is a siege movie. Um, but we just did it, so I'm not going to re release it this month. Um, <laughs> The uh, there's no there's no uh, moment where Lord Humongous comes up to the front steps and says, just surrender and we'll let you go. Um, leave the gas behind, but you can take your cars. You'll be fine. Like there's there's no sort of negotiation going on. Um, the the blood pact, the cholo, as they call it. I didn't have a time. I didn't have much of a, a chance to. Uh, uh, figure out if that was just something that John Carpenter made up because Cholo is also sort of a derogatory yeah, term d- for word doesn't for- it doesn't feel good saying yeah we'll just call it the blood pact it's also confusing because the gang member the leader one of the four is literally the Cholo leader so they had to know at least at some point like he had to know to some degree that it was 
a name for like a person, but then yeah. they call the act of whatever the throwing the blood is is the cholo. <laughs> yeah, so, they're using some sort of street shorthand, and also John Carpenter admits in interviews, like or in uh, the commentary track uh, for this, he admits that he's like, yeah, well, L.A. didn't have the gang problems it had in the late in you know post crack at this point. Um, it didn't have the gang problems that led into the '90s and led into like the L.A. riots era and like uh you know that they have today he was like they didn't have they didn't have those sort of gang problems so like a lot of we had to like sort of scour la um and sometimes we'd be shooting you know like the police station itself district nine or was it uh precinct nine yeah Um, precinct nine district 13 that's a beautiful the exterior one of the exteriors of the police station is a beautiful uh location in venice which is obviously a very nice suburb of la um and they only he was like i was only allowed to shoot within this distance because if you went left or you went right too far you saw mansions <laughs> oh my god yeah. yeah which you know yeah there there wasn't all of the kind of 80s uh gang stuff the biggest problem that la had was what america had peter and that was a communist president by the name of Jimmy Carter that caused an economic recession and oil shortages and, you know, all those things that when Democrats get into office, they uh, deal with pretty well. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, plop. But I'm saying it did occur on his watch, which, you know. You know, and, and we love to watch Jimmy Carter. We love to watch. Yeah, we just wish that we would have loved him to fail upwards yeah i mean honestly <laughs> his... for him to have not lost to ronald Reagan. yeah the irony is is that jimmy carter's biggest uh biggest problem wasn't the way he handled <laughs> the oil shortage post-vietnam uh his uh why jimmy carter should correctly be uh excoriated is because he lost to ronald reagan giving us um uh, conservatives as they exist today it's a straight line it is a straight line. It is interesting, though, that like at the time that John Carter was shooting, uh, John Carter, John the Car- time that John Carp- Carpenter of Earth was shooting this, he he had like a sense of L.A. as this town of possibilities, right? And then by the time he got to They Live, L.A. is shot as he he had he said he had no problem finding L.A. looking as this like at times glitzy and glamoury, but like this corporate dystopia. Like L.A. had yeah. by the between here and They Live, L, uh, L.A. in his mind had changed so much and it's interesting because like when you watch this movie and you watch they live without john carpenter's commentary you just be like oh well he thinks la sucks um yeah but when he he was like oh yeah no la was pretty peaceful at the time but there was a lot of fear of crime waves there was a lot of fear of immigrants there was a lot of fear of others uh you know Hispanic folks, black folks, uh, gay folks, just anybody that wasn't didn't fit into the mold of what America was um, them taking over the culture. And he was like, this movie is directly exploiting sort of, uh, you know, mainstream America's fear of, of that. Um, and that's why it's a straight up exploitation movie is because I was exploiting America's fear. Yeah. So what you what you would say is that uh, the way that John Carpenter felt about L.A., in 1976 was uh, the way you that you think Randy Newman feels about L.A. If you hear I love L.A. once and then the way that he uh, felt about uh, <laughs> L.A. in 1987 
is how you think Randy Newman feels about I Love uh, L.A. after hearing it 50 times. <laughs> uh, right? That's a pretty clean that's meta- a pretty That's clean like a John, It's a John Carpenter of metaphors right there. Yeah. No right excess there. baggage, not complicated. <laughs> really clean. Gang members coming together wasn't because like, oh, they're joining forces. It just makes it less nameless because like if, if you make it a specific yeah. gang then all of a sudden all weaponizing that possible fear or whatever all of a sudden is directed towards a specific group and instead it's like no these are like you were saying yeah. how it's zombie inspired where it's like they're nameless they're they're hordes they're waves of people but it's not supposed to be a specific group and that's exactly what john carpenter said in in, in uh the commentary track he's like i made the multicultural because like I don't have any problems with any particular racial group. So I, I wanted, and I wanted to make the white guy the creepiest. <laughs> I want to avoid that discussion. And the white guy's a drug addict who dies. You're like, all right, great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, one of the funny things we'll we'll probably talk a little bit about this later. Funny is not the right word, but like it is like in the same way. Following Night of the Living Dead, like you know, um, the main character of this movie is a person of color. Um, uh, you know, some of the side characters, the main side characters with a lot of dialogue in them are are women um and then i like that uh 30 years later the remake is like oh okay what if we switch it up and make him a white guy oh yeah they strip like everything oh the the women are terribly written and uh yeah We'll make that black officer. Well, he's the bad guy now again. Let's, yeah, what, what, let's, let's tidy hear, that up. You're like, thanks, 2005. Hear me out. What if all the cops are white and all the bad yep. guys are black? Mm-hmm. Just just to switch it up, to change up the dynamic from Assault on Precinct 13 will be subversive. People aren't uh, ready, you know, for... <laughs> Yeah, if if yeah, if we did a if we did a person of color as the main character and strong yeah. women characters, people would think, "Oh, you're just copying the original." So what if we make it all white people? And we make all the the women characters useless. They're so Oh, I literally on on my notes, I have one of them was just female characters. I like bad boys versus uh Dr. Ho- so-and-so shrieks. And I'm like, that's literally, <laughs> there you go. That's what it was. It was Alex shrieks because that's what showed up on my TV for the subtitles. It's like, there you go. It's I like bad boys versus shrieking. And you're like, all right, that's yeah. that's the female character. And they're like, much. well, it is Detroit. Should we at least have, I don't know, like a black cop or something? They're like, all right, but he dies like immediately. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to get, like, there's a bullet and he's down dead on a gurney. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only person of color at a Detroit <laughs> precinct. It's all white people. I have to. Anyways. So, yeah. So, I have to. We'll, we'll while get we're, While that. we're talking about sort of the racial dynamics and the the um, the genre dynamics here, um, the faceless cops uh, slaughtering gang members that opens up Assault on Precinct 1376. Um and then the gangs all uniting silently after that uh, yeah. is a very interesting prologue to throw in. It's so good. It's so good because it's it's pre it's it, it it shows you that Rodney King was not the first. It shows you that none none of the the countless countless people of color that have been murdered by cops was the first. And the movie is essentially saying like, okay, what if? All of the marginalized people got together and acted as a sort of like almost karmic force. And and those 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 kids that get shot in that alley, 
They don't stand a chance. They're, they, they've got guns, but they don't like this isn't a fight. They're faceless oh, no. cops shooting down into an alley. They actually, John Carpenter made a point of shooting that set. Uh, those are, were shot on separate days in separate locations. Uh, those were UCLA students just getting splattered all over the walls. And then the cops were shot at like a different location. The cops shooting down into that. I did read that and he was saying something like it was one of the more fun days because all the students were just showing off like how they could <laughs> thwap the blood this way and that yeah. way. Like while they're getting shot, you're like that does sound like a fun little day of filmmaking. <laughs> well, he still says this is the funnest that he's ever had on a movie set. I'm sure complete control and um, all the money he needed at least was, yeah. was helpful to that. But yeah, he says this was this was his best uh, shooting experience. But much like, much like the little girl in this movie uh, gets her dreams of eating ice cream cream stepped on peter's starting to step on a little bit of the the plot so i say oh are you guys ready to start talking another perfect metaphor by the way are you guys ready to start talking about assault on precinct 13 yeah let's just start now let's start now okay. nothing before counts no no erase it <laughs> taglines but alternate taglines as if you had to sum up the movie in one sentence we love it's a segment we do assault on precinct nine i wrote i wrote down the same alternate tagline so so uh aaron i don't know if you were paying attention in the scene where uh yeah it's because the it's because uh john carpenter didn't name the film he had other names that kept getting rejected like siege was like this sounds more uh, ominous yeah so john carpenter wanted to name it the anderson alamo or the siege uh which are both way more westerny sounding and what was his uh pseudonym that he was submitted under because it was the same because i was reading about it it was the same one from Oh yeah, so he, uh, so he, he uh, operated, he wrote, directed the music for, produced yada yada for this movie, but he uh, edited the movie under the name. Because uh, uh, it's it's John yeah, Wayne's John T. name, John T. Chance. Uh, yeah, from which is John Wayne's name in uh, in uh, the Rio Bravo. It is interesting that did we have we talked about with all our John Carpenter's um, movies that uh, his initials are the same as Jesus Christ, who is also a carpenter. Uh, <laughs> we have. Uh, yeah. It's worth talking about again. Do you think that when Jesus was uh, writing his Sermon on the Mount, he also drank an entire bottle of vodka and wrote it in a weekend? <laughs> I'll tell you who's had a better impact on my life. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, is this the part where you say Jesus Christ and then you convert us both to, yeah. to, to, to boring old You just walked into my 40-year, 210-episode-long con uh, uh, to be converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> Welcome to We Love to Convert. Not only am I trying to convert you to uh, a Christian-type religion, but I only like remakes. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to be singing the praises of 2005 Solo Precinct 13 over uh, the 1976 one and talking about Latter-day Saints. Not those uh, former day saints. Yeah. Fuck those guys. The former or the latter. No, the Latter-day Saints. <laughs> and these aren't Latter-day Saints. 
Yeah, they're not changing light bulbs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, though Mormons are very hardworking. Any other, any other alternate taglines? What, what did, did they have taglines in 1976? Uh, I think it was like, uh, "Watch this movie or the other one." <laughs> <laughs> Go with option B. Uh, it's probably, I mean, this was probably a B movie. They probably were like, keep watching after you watch the Andromeda strain. Yeah. Stay tuned. There's nudity in the next one. <laughs> um, so, Aaron, do you want to recap sure. Assault on Precinct 13? Upstanding citizens, as far as you know, are walking through an alley. They get gunned down. You find out these were not upstanding citizens, but gang they were, members. They were Antifa super soldiers. They were Antifa super soldiers. And uh, ultimately, they were trying to bring down our uh, the person who got the most electoral votes ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and trying to uh, undo the election results of the American people in certain states. Uh, but no, they got they're gunned down by like in an alley by uh, uh, police officers. <gasps> who, uh, in this movie, for the most part, unlike in real life, are portrayed as the heroes. Um, just a little fun fact. This is a little <laughs> twist in your expectations. You see police officers, you're like, not not good. Uh, but these guys are, in theory, the good guys. But they do gun down these people that are just walking. They don't read them their rights. I don't I don't remember hearing an order to throw your guns down. So that doesn't sound good. No, I believe what the uh, order yeah, was is, this is the police. And that was good enough. You just... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's just that's that's just like how Zorro writes the Z. Yeah. Right? This is your mark. Like, they were shooting it. while saying police. Yeah, yeah so, they have a very Daryl Gates approach to, to law enforcement. Shoot first and ask questions never. <laughs> yeah. So there's essentially three discrete things that go on for the first half of this movie after that. There is a, uh, a police uh, sergeant who is uh, given the bad old luck of taking care of this this uh, precinct nine district 13 uh, that is about to um, about to get shut down um, and he has to kind of spend one more night before it it shuts down because they can still get calls they can still get areas even though the area is generally abandoned um, and he so he just kind of goes there's one old police officer a couple people the receptionist um, not many people. It's a, it's a ghost town. Uh, that is intercut between uh, these gang members who uh, perform this blood ritual to say we are going to get back to the police uh, under any circumstances, even death. So they are going to attack back. Death will not stop them. They are not worried about dying, um, but they are going to do that. And they kill some time throughout the day. They're still going to wait till night because the blood ritual says, you know, nighttime's the right time for blood rituals. Just <laughs> they're making night. So they're, yeah, so they're killing time by driving around the, the leaders of the gangs, uh, various different gangs in the areas, uh, looking for people to shoot. They see a couple homeless people and they're like, no, thank you. And then eventually settle on a father and a daughter who well, actually they're kind of stalking this ice cream truck. But this ice cream truck eventually gets mixed up with his father and daughter. The daughter goes to ask for ice cream. Right at the same time, the gang uh, has got out of their car and decides that these are good people to shoot. And shoots uh, the ice cream truck driver, who is packing. Uh, it's a very dangerous ice cream 
truck neighborhood he, he's in. Like, maybe just don't, like, ice cream trucks are not essential workers. Maybe just don't deliver to the area you need the gun in. Uh, how, how, much, how much profit is the ice yeah, cream the twinkle, you? twinkle, and you think I'm not packing? What can I say? Uh, a business is good in this I'm, neighborhood. I'm basically a bank that drives around playing nursery rhymes. You don't think I have a gun? Uh, <laughs> Do you think he ever uh, ghost rides the whip? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Just gets out, dances alongside it. Keeps the song going. Yeah. Ideally, if you have a neighborhood full of lactose intolerant people, you don't need the gun. You just throw ice cream at them if they try to <laughs> Eat this, you're going to uh, poop weird for a few days. First, you're going to be constipated, then it's all coming out. Yeah. <laughs> How dare I, you rob me? I'd kill you, but I got I to gotta get home right now. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, and th- that's kind of the moment that we'll, t- we'll probably talk about a little. So, this little girl gets shot very graphically, very just uh, the... The white gang leader pulls out his gun and just shoots her without even looking up when she comes back to ask Ludicrous for um, Yeah. Um, and covered in blood, she collapses the dad who's on a phone booth. Another movie that that girl with, with a cell phone would have survived. Um, so <laughs> for all you people that are uh, Amish and don't like technology, just think of you could have saved this girl's life. You know what also would have saved her life is if – she had the uh, awkwardness of an introvert, and she was just like, "Yeah, this is the wrong ice cream." But I I'm guess it's not gonna come back. I don't really care that it's not a vanilla twist. I'll yeah. call it a yeah. day. Yeah, if anything, it's it's it's. Uh, there's a lot of people's fault. I think it's the ice cream driver for not giving the the twist. She clearly says vanilla twist, so just to go and dump some vanilla in a cone is pretty shitty. So partially his fault, but yeah, I also think you know, probably well off, upper class, greedy. <laughs> Greedy little 10-year-olds, like, you're already halfway back to the car. Just be happy you had to stop for your dad to yell at someone on a payphone. You got ice cream? You got to come back for the twist? That's how working as a blue-collar guy, just trying to make a living. Like, I, I would actually say it's mostly the ice cream driver's fault. 100%. Yeah. It's, uh, also the guy that shoots her. I mean, a, a bit. Uh, <clears throat> ice cream guy, mostly. Uh, and then the third story is a, a prison bus that is uh transporting people this um killer what's what's his name napoleon wilson yeah so napoleon wilson so uh these other these other uh criminals but the main like notorious one in the in the group is napoleon wilson and we never find out what um, he did right he killed some oh. guys, but they didn't really say what the context was. You know he's was. on death row or whatever. He's Which is important. Row. Like, uh, like at the end of the movie, like, no, he walks out with me. And they're like, why is he walking out with you? Like, he's a notorious pedophile that ran through 30 states. Like, oh, wait. Maybe his heroic <laughs> moment feels less. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, he he's, he's notorious. Like, why'd you kill all those people? But he, like, yeah. it, he doesn't really give an answer at any point. Because that's part of he, running the joke, right? Where he's like... I'll tell you later. Yeah. yeah. It's also, again, good because you do want to see him as a little bit of a hero at the end. And if you know probably his crimes, it's harder to. Agreed. Kind of, like, it's better to keep it. it vague. Yeah. But he is notorious. So a uh, few things happen. One, it becomes night, which means that the criminals can attack this pol- this uh, basically police station. They choose it because, again, almost every house in the surrounding area is uh, empty. Um, it's why they're shutting down the police station and they're going to use silencers so they can kind of kill people. This bus gets diverted because one of them has a cold and they need to immediately stop in case one of them has a cold. He, that he's is, got like some COVID-y cold though. He's got some guys got a runny nose. I will say 
like, who cares, right? It's just a plot mechanism to get the yeah. bus there. That's the one thing I think the remake does, like, oh, yeah, it's a snowstorm. Got it. <laughs> As opposed to, no, right now! He just Well, because in, in the original, he's like, he's he might be infected. He goes, well, go. you just have to go ten blocks and, like, or he might yeah. say five. It's, like, really not that far in a bus. It's not like he's, like, you have to drive miles. Yeah. He's like, oh, you just have to go a couple blocks. He's like, listen, guy, if he's infectious, then we'll all have it. It's like, if it's infectious, you all probably yeah, you're already fi- what have is, it. What is five more yeah. blocks? Why we would you take yeah. the back of the bus and keep moving? Yeah. Uh, that's a little bit stretching. Uh, and then, yeah, so they, they get there. And as soon as they get to the police st- station, most of the people transporting uh, Napoleon and the rest of the prisoners get shot and killed. Uh, it's this all of a sudden they're just under siege. You know, no one was expecting it. No one knows why. Um, and the only thing they really ever figure out is that Napoleon understands enough to go and say, hey, just to let you know, this is they, they don't want anything. They're not going to stop. That this is a blood ritual that I've heard of that basically means uh, cops have wronged them. They're going to c- keep coming till all of us are dead. Everyone in the station doesn't matter why, doesn't matter how. Um, and that also that the they they're not like they're not like zombies in that they're an unending wave and they're brainless. They've made it. They've parked cars in a way that makes it look like it's business as usual. They're using silencers. They're dragging dead bodies so that even if you know the return fire is loud enough to make one of the surrounding areas, um, someone in the surrounding area call the police. The police are going to drive by and essentially see just a just just everything is normal. Um, so they, you know, they're running out of ammunition. They're running out of supplies, um, and uh, and they're trying to figure out how to get through this. There is a lot of there's 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 not that much actually um, uh, consistent action scenes. Like it's pretty like they realize the stakes. A couple people do die as part of this, and then the remaining characters, specifically uh, Lieutenant Bishop and. And Napoleon Wilson are like, okay, we're going to get people out this way. We have three bullets in the sniper rifle. We're going to lead them here. We're going to put some of this uh, stuff that uh, goes boom, this flammable material. And we're going to try to funnel them through there. Hope that in this final attack, we make enough noise that the actual, not the actual police, but more policemen come and get called and come and save us. And ultimately, that's what happened. Yeah, they there's this huge wave of gang members. They shoot. Uh, as many as they can. Uh, they they their plan works where they're able to like blow up a good chunk of the basement of this uh, through a sniper rifle, uh, and by that point, that's enough noise t- for the police to come uh, and uh, eventually uh, save the remaining people before before it's too late. And yeah, it's um, also worth noting. Like, if someone asks you what's your favorite line of Assault on Precinct Thirteen, you're not going to have an answer because. There is it is so like minimalistic from dialogue. The gang members are, basically don't talk at any point, um, including when they're driving around looking for people to kill. Um, the the it's amazingly uh, creepy. It's very yeah. it's very pre Michael Myers. Yeah, there's a little bit of banter in the prison bus about what you what did you do, and the lieutenant's just doing the all right. Well, what are you doing after shift? Like, think it's going to be a slow night? Like, there's 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 not even two there's a little bit of character building so you get to know um napoleon and the lieutenant but it really is just like hey um you you you've put all the chess pieces you know why the gang's there you know how ruthless the gang is you know um why this prisoner's there 
and you know what's going on at the police station. And then we're going to spend the last 40 minutes of this letting all that play out. And it's it's really fantastic. It, it held up a little bit better. Like, I, obviously, it was my ninth favorite John Carpenter movie and why I think that's the same <laughs> range just because jo- John Carpenter makes a bunch of really great movies that I'm extremely fond of. Like, it did go up like a star rating for me. I think I had it at four stars and I put it up to five on Letterboxd just because I'm like, oh, no, this is perfect. Yeah, it, 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 I think it's one of the best movies of the 70s. When I watched it um, before, I was like, oh, this is just like a really tight, awesome action movie. and it, But it felt almost like it was like a a promise to what would come um, in Escape from New York and they live and such. But when I was watching it, it has so much that those later movies don't have. It's so stripped down that mm-hmm. mi- and that minimalism has such an, an evocative power. When, you, when you're sitting, there's like a survival horror element. Like when you're sitting in the basement with them in, those cr- in that cramped little hallway and you could just hear yeah. the... the um, the the uh, gang uh, Street Thunder, <laughs> apparently the name of the gang. Um, them batting down the halls, and you can hear them getting so fucking pumped and smacking their bats against the hallway walls, yeah. and to get to the you know to get to our our friends. Um, it's it's scary. It's taut. You're counting bullets along with everyone else. Like that that sort of like management uh of of econ this economy um in, in the movie is so wonderful john carpenter understood that like less is more on on kind of every scale here and i, I just love i love that it's like a 90 minute movie that mm-hmm. gets in accomplishes its goal and when it ends you're like god god damn i want to know what the hell happens next but you don't actually want to know what's happens next. Like you, you, you're satisfied with what happens, and you know that the moment that um, Wilson and Bishop step out of that basement, things are going to get real ugly for Wilson. He's he's going to be completely unrecognized for his valor. Wilson's going to go right back. Maybe the governor will call in a, a you know a favor and say like, all right. You don't have death row anymore, but you do have life in prison forever. <laughs> um, like, the, you know, it's yeah. going to get real ugly. But that moment that the two of them share as they're walking down the hallway together, uh, Bishop specifically says no handcuffs for Wilson. He's like, he's going to walk out of here as a hero. Um, it's it's magnanimous. It's 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 the, the simplicity is just so. So effective. Yeah, it, and, and that's why, like, you know, I, I think uh, Ryan and I both say we don't have a ton of notes in this movie because, yeah, it's it really is, like, I'm glad we're, we had some stuff to talk about at the front, and I'm glad we have stuff to talk about uh, with the 2005, the remake. Uh, not because this isn't worth talking about, but it is, th- it is that stripped down, and you kind of see where a movie like this could go wrong, and the versions that we have seen that has gone wrong. Let's, let's exclude the remake, but... I think the the brilliant choice is to spend the first half of this movie with three stories that eventually converge into one so that um so that you can have the creepiness of the gang members like that's all you need to know about the gang members they're that dangerous they're killing time like they they have no problem killing now they have a reason to kill these people that's all you need to know that you don't spend too much time at the police station you don't need to get to know these people like to the point of like Again, the remake's an easy comparison point, but, like, yeah, you don't need to know about their dating life. You don't need to know 
about this and that. You last night at the station, and then um, yeah, the the like you don't need a lot of sensationalism with the killer either. You just need to know he's on a bus. People are scared of him, and he's getting there. And you can see the version of this like where the the guy in prison's already in jail, so that's like that's the twist is that you need prisoners to help because they're low on men. And then you spend so much of the movie seeing gang members say stuff like we're gonna kill those cops and we're gonna do like planning their their assaults and you know you spend too much time with the cops and you end up with a movie that feels like every other 70s or 80s siege movie with like you know uh the villains that are the opposite of nameless and faceless like they are people their main characters their top build stars and you're gonna see them try to attack the good guys that you've spent time knowing and what you end up with is something that on paper may look similar but feels much more ununique and generic in a way that like this doesn't yeah, I even noted where the gang leaders, when they first get in the back of the car and they're prepping the guns and whatnot just to drive around and look for people, they're, it's it's all so calm. It's all without any I, – I put calmly driving and prepping their gun scene. It, it, it's just interesting because like you said, usually I'm used to a car full of people saying like, let's go get those cops. Let's kill them. Let's gun them down. And instead it's just quiet. And someone's like, yeah, wait till nighttime. Yeah, no, it's Which just quietly kind of scuttles, uh, putting everything end of in. Watch. End of Watch is ruined by a, a director who doesn't have a great racial track record. Um, that like write, barbecue type scene? Yeah, and him having to write dialogue for Hispanic characters who are, you know, out looking for cops to murder. Um, yeah. That him having to write that sort of gang dialogue kind of kind of ruins the last act of End of Watch. Um, but yeah, John Carpenter is just like, here's what their motivation is in the prologue. But why are they showing me this? Oh, this is actually how John Carpenter feels. That like subtle, gentle hand that he places in a movie that's just wall to wall violence is majestic. Well, everything is paired so pared down so perfectly and and like you guys are kind of saying it's stripped down but in the best kind of way that opening scene it's literally as you kind of mentioned it's faceless gangsters go into an alley faceless cops from above say this is the police and then just start murdering them then it cuts to a different room with the radio saying there are some assault rifles stolen and if you know the gangs work together then they'd be unstoppable and while that the gang leaders are entering in this blood pack that there is pretty much all you need to know and it's oh okay these gangsters are going to come after him and then that's it you're like everything else is pretty pretty nameless pretty faceless peter noted really well i think that like the other thing is that so those four people while they while they don't speak when they're driving around and you know that like they're the ones that do the ritual and then they're kind of wait driving around you get to know what they're like as gang leaders you kind of, I think, expect maybe the first time you're watching this to to see them again in, like, some sort of bigger moment. Like, you know, Peter mentioned the Leather Daddy Road Warrior moment. Like, you, you think maybe there's going to be a Lord Humongous who comes out and be like, this is why we're killing you. Or they're the final boss where just those four alone get out of the car after all their men have died. And now you got to, like, none well, of that happens. No. Like, you and- just, you were just getting a sense of who the whole what kind of people are continually throwing themselves at this cop car by meeting their four leaders that's it and non-verbally like the way that their uh actual get-ups and their demeanor and all these things 
actually give the characters a, like a big feel. I mean, obviously one guy feels like he's like a discount Che Guevara and <laughs> and you've got but like they, they discount. Do, they do all these little things, though, that like really seem like like you said, like, oh, obviously they're going to come up. They're going to come up later and they should like they're going to say some stuff or do something or whatever. And you're like, no, it's really just like, here's why it's happening. All right, now go. And you're like, oh, OK, we're just we're doing it. And I, I think it's really interesting. I actually didn't know until reading about it that it was um that there was any kind of inspiration from uh night of the living dead but upon reading that you're like oh that makes 100 percent sense like it yeah you i mean yeah. I, I mean i wrote down notes while doing it where i'm like oh it feels a lot like similar to that kind of stuff just in general with like we were talking about how kind of how they move and kind of how things are set up and whatever but i never drew that line and then it's like i, I read it and was like oh yeah that 100 percent i could see that it it just makes a lot of sense there's a good connection there too to Night of the Living Dead in that this movie, uh, it was in, it played in I think uh, the Cannes Fil- Film Festival um, out of competition, but it opened the festival. It may not have been Cannes, but it was a big film festival. And then the other movie that was playing there, that was like the big out of competition one, was uh, Romero, who followed up Night of the Living Dead with Martin. And Romero, when he saw it, said, fuck. <laughs> like, he, he was talking about, like, how, like, that kind of – that kind of ate his movie's lunch when it came to, like, the when, when moviegoers, like, on that festival walked out thinking about, like, a genre film that made them feel like Night of the Living Dead. He said that, like, people thought of that, not – not Martin. And he didn't mean that like he loved the movie. He didn't mean it like a, you stole my thunder, John. It's easy to go like, hey, I'm looking for that Romero energy. Romero's at this film festival and you see Martin, which is a great movie, but a deeply different movie than a, you know, a Day of the Living Dead, zombie, whatever yeah. else. A strange, strange, strange movie. And then uh, you see something like this and you're probably like, oh, I got my Romero fix from this movie, from this new guy. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 Martin, I wish I wish that in an, you know another universe, um, Martin had also gotten some more accolades, and and uh, yeah. Romero could have made Martin's a, really great, a, a yeah. lot more really quiet, awkward genre riffs like Martin, where it's like I don't mean awkward as a as an insult. I mean like awkward, like it's getting into the sort of strangeness of what it means to be human. Assault on Precinct Thirteen is fucking cool as a cucumber, man. Like this movie yeah. is this movie is so confident so ballsy so self-assured all the characters talk like western heroes right um they've all got these these little lines like uh somebody like a bishop has their has a plan involving uh exploding uh, a pipe when there's enough bad guys in the tunnel that they can use this one explosive to kill a hell of a lot of them and uh wilson is just like can't argue with a confident man, and then and then later, as the plan is going to shit, uh, <laughs> somebody asks Wilson, like, "Well, what, what should we do?" or something, and he's like, "Can't argue with a confident man." <laughs> like, it's, it's great how he like he'll reuse those lines, and like the "got a smoke" line comes back, and like I love the way I, Wilson. I, he, w- yeah, Wilson, it, he is really funny. He also has the line of like. Yeah, he's but like a very like John Carpenter stripped down quip machine where it's uh, but I love the uh, uh, two cops wishing me luck. How could I possibly go wrong? I, I really <laughs> loved right right when we're introduced to him. For some reason, I really like the you mumble a little bit. I get the general idea. Just like just like uh, immediately right off the bat, you're like, OK, so it's just like some smart ass bastard. You're like, all right, great. 
So while we're talking about Darwin Justin as Wilson, um, who's, the, you know, the criminal, uh, cops versus robbers kind of thing, or cops versus murderers, um, he's sort of a preview to Snake Plissken. He's an anti-hero. He's got this dark past, but they keep that past in the shadows. You quite, don't quite know what he did and whether or not you're on his side. Uh, in Escape from New York, they famously cut this like bank robbery that opens the movie um, because they wanted Snake to be more mysterious. Uh, similar to that, you never learn really what Darwin Justin actually did. Uh, in a modern Hollywood movie, that would be a third act reveal. In this movie, it's just like, I just got to stay alive, man. Maybe I'll tell you later. I don't know. Maybe he tells him in the hallway on the way up and we just don't get to see it because we weren't fucking there. That reminds me of a green room thing too, right? Like where the whole thing is like his thing he keeps saying he's going to eventually tell someone is what his desert island band is and you never find out what it is. Yeah. And and, and she says like who gives a fuck or whatever. Yeah. Well, like how could I possibly give a shit at the end of yeah. the movie when he, and same here he never like the person he was going to reveal it to gets shot so yeah he doesn't he doesn't reveal it I always considered this a minimalist sort of prologue in my head canon to Escape from New York um, not that this guy is Snake Plissken but um, you know crime wave is rising and then that causes a fascist government to just declare part of the country a big prison hole that you dump bodies into um, and. Uh, what I love about Darwin Justin is this. He looks like when you actually see mug shots of what a real criminal, he looks like a real criminal. He doesn't have fucking Channing Tatum's beautiful, just smoochable face. Um, and it's weird, per- weird attack and then recovery. Of yeah, per- his performance is a tinge awkward, which I like. The guy doesn't have natural movie star charisma. He doesn't have that movie star power that a Kurt Russell does. Um but I love I love that because it makes it feel more real to me, and it, and because I only really know him from this movie, it makes Napoleon Wilson stand out as this sort of like it, 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 this wasn't a, a beat in Kurt Russell's career. This was this own unique little moment for this one actor. Yeah, kind of it kind of sucks for the actors, but this and Night of the Living Dead, I think, both benefit from the fact that you've never seen any of these people in anything else. Yeah, Night of the Living Dead. There's there's uh, one actor, uh, the lead actor goes on to Ganja and Hess. And oh yeah, that's about, which was that's weird when it, I finally saw that last like a year or so ago. I'm like, oh shit, he did another movie. Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of it. Um, but he yeah. but he's well directed. He, it's well performed. Um, he just lacks a little bit of that movie star spark, that movie star natural charisma. Yeah, he's community theater uh, fucking a streetcar named Desire. All, yes, all yes, yes, exactly. That's that's a good point. Like, but I I don't think that's actually an insult to him. No, I think it helps. Yeah, he's got he's got more of a realness. There's more of a gritty griminess to him, and, and like I I wouldn't trade him for like some glossy. I wouldn't trade him for a Paul Newman or something, right? Much like Ja Rule saying with Jennifer Lopez, I'm real. Yeah, he's real. He's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently, ja ja oh, and a- apparently he's, he says there's a line that he, uh, while we're talking about Western stuff, it's just going to pop in all month. Um, there's a line where he says, like a preacher says, there's something about you. There's something about you in death. Um uh, that I, I didn't I was like where the fuck have I heard that before and I was like well I did see Assault on Precinct 13 when I was 12 it's probably from this movie and then I realized <laughs> it's from Once Upon a Time in the West oh, he just wow. stole he just stole a line from a Leone movie <laughs> um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit 
because we do have a lot to get to with a whole nother movie here. Um, let's talk a little bit about the scene. So the scene. We've, we've, we've mentioned it, which is where, um, you know, the, the a 10-year-old girl who comes back and asks for a twist in her ice cream gets unceremoniously shot. Like, the guy doesn't even look up from the book he's reading. He hears her say, hey, you were supposed to give me a twist. He lowers his gun and he shoots her. And you see her dead on the sidewalk covered in, like, uh, 1970s special effects bright red blood. The dad uh, gets off his f- phone call and sees her laying dead on the side of the street and runs up. Uh, to it. So, uh, the, the movie doesn't have that much gore, but the MPAA said, uh, this is going to get rated X. You can't have that. So, what John Carpenter did was he uh, sent back the MPAA a version with this, with that part cut out, and then to all the theaters, he just sent the other version <laughs> and said it was rated R. And that was on the, that was on the advice from the distributor. Um, yeah. where the distributor is like, yeah, just cut the scene. <laughs> I did like when I was reading about that, it was like, which was common for the time or whatever. You're like, oh, so you could just be like, yeah, sure. Here's what I'm sending out. And then just send which, out whatever you wanted. <laughs> which if you watch a lot of these movies makes more sense. Like there's so many times that even watching like an R rated movie in the seventies, I'm like, how the fuck? I mean, we, we did flesh Gordon that was rated R like, there's so much nudity. Like, even though there's no, like, penetration, it's uh, it's all sex. How did that get rated R even in 1972? Um, and then you realize, I guess, th- how would they check? Go to a theater in fucking Sheboygan? So, yeah. uh, like, I do have a question. Is is the dad supposed to be, like, a creep? Because, like, what, so. what, what, is the co- think- what is the conversation they're having in the car beforehand? I mean, not to obviously get with, with specifically. He's, like... It's just like a really odd conversation. I don't know. Oh, it, they're trying to. I think they have a nanny or a grandmother. I couldn't tell. It's a nanny. Who is, yeah. Who's not doing well health wise. And they're basically like, we're going to do a good thing for her. And he's like, he's he's a white uh, upper middle class, I'm guessing. Dad. Stressed out guy. Stressed out guy because he's in the ghetto and he has to go. She lives in a bad neighborhood. She has trouble probably getting to their house. And he's basically like, she's going to come live with us. And I want you to be the pitch man. Yeah, uh, I, I think I read that completely wrong. It just felt like a very odd conversation for some reason. Yeah, it, it, I think I think it's supposed to be like it's basically supposed to be like an idyllic family. But you're right. There's like a there's a, a little bit of a roughness in John Carpenter having to write an idyllic family because when the fuck has John Carpenter written an idyllic? Family? I mean, it's also a 70s version of an ideal yeah. family where like if you're not leaving like black eyes on your kids, you're like a good parent. Well, and, no I, what and I thought it was for like an actual nanny. So he's like, yeah, go tell your nanny she can't live in this neighborhood she should come live with me and the girl's like i should blah, blah. he's like no no say it exactly as we practice or whatever and you're like oh man like this guy's this guy's really oh, no. skeeving me out on this nanny and then you're like oh it's probably the grandma i'm like oh right sure yeah that works that works too never mind nanny grandma someone that they want to keep like they want to keep in the in the family fold they yeah keep if it's a nanny they want to keep paying her they want her to still feel like useful and, and feel safe and if it's grandma they just want grandma to move in with them because grandma can't really live alone anymore especially in this kind of neighborhood like yeah. i think that's the whole uh, dynamic uh one other thing is that this movie kind of uh, gained a resurgence in popularity in 1998 um and that, like, people went to go kind of check it out for the first time because uh, another uh, – to connection to our March month once again, uh, noted uh, 
all well-rounded human being Mel Gibson said in an in interview that his favorite uh, scene from a shocking standpoint in any movie was the kid getting shot in Assault at Precinct <laughs> 13. Um, and, you know, uh, makes makes even more sense uh, now that we know maybe he's not so well-rounded. <laughs> like He's like, yeah, my favorite thing ever was when I saw that kid get shot. <laughs> that has shaped me. I saw that in Australia while I was filming... He, I think he was, like, talking about uh, when he watched it on the set while they were making, like, The Year of Living Dangerously or Gallipoli or something. And he's like, oh, my God. I was like, I got to make movies like this. <laughs> <laughs> I got to make movies that are just about men suffering because they lost a woman. Uh, or a child. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. Like, yeah, because I guess all of his movies he directed, like, it's like um, he he gets, gets revenge on someone killing a, a woman in his life in different accents. Lethal Weapon, Braveheart, Conspiracy Theory to some degree. I'm assuming Bloodfather, uh, even though I didn't see it. Uh, the Patriot. Oh shit, you're right. The Patriot is entirely about. Well, he's also getting he's also getting revenge for the young handsome twink. Uh, Heath Ledger gets murdered, and that's what? does Heath Ledger get murdered in that? It's been a while since. Uh, yeah, that. he gets killed by uh, the ultimate villain, Jason Isaacs. He is the ultimate. Um, villain. he uh, that movie is the only thing I remember about that movie is that when I was um in high school, I was trying to write in a, a like an a, like an action movie, probably a little bit too much. Like, oh, I really liked Blow, <laughs> so I'm gonna write that. You know, high school movie writing. But I thought my like. One of my favorite action scenes that I wrote and I thought was super original was like the idea of someone like kicking down a board that was loose and then it flipping up into their hand. And then he, you know, you kill the next person with the two nails from the board that flipped up by going into them. And Peter, you talk about these moments sometimes. And then I remember seeing the patron being like, God fucking damn. Oh, it's the worst. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, the only other like major thing I want to say about this, this movie and then I we can pivot, but I'm sure Peter and Ryan, you might have a couple things, so I'll turn it over to you before we pivot. Um, the the scene where the the police station first gets shot up is clearly done like in real time, right? So not just practical effects. Like they have shit in the room rigged to like you know papers to explode and glass. Oh, I love it's that. Really that's well a, that's done. A set, by the way, which is cool. Yeah, it's really well done. But I will say, watching on HD, you see the seams a little bit more, like, mm-hmm. that that things are rigged. And I couldn't help but think, like, is the ghost from the library scene in Ghostbusters also haunting I, the uh, also <laughs> salt on Precinct 13? I backed Oh, no, the paper's exploded. I backed it up because it is. It's, like, heavy gunfire, and then it hangs on the same shot for a while, and then it's, like, pause, pause, and then it's clearly just, like, a couple more peppered. But instead, it's a hold, it's silent, and then it's pew, and just a bunch of pages go poo, and then pew. And then a couple pages go pew over here. And so you're just like, uh, okay. Like it was, it was intense. And then it does feel like Ghostbusters, like, haha, a little bit over here. <laughs> and you're like, all right, all right. They just look over and all of a sudden someone's like, shh. Because it even makes a little noises too. So it, all of a sudden it becomes yeah. a little fun. Like, oh, papers. Oh, inconvenience. You're like, oh, all right. But extremely impressive. I imagine a good chunk of the budget was on that, that, like that one like full on siege scene where they're ducking because it goes on for a while it's really well done they do there's a lot of firing and yeah it is a little humorous um that's all I have to say about Assault on Precinct 13 1976 do you guys have anything before we quickly talk a little bit about what watching the remake was like yeah I've got a I've got a a 
big chunk of final thoughts. Uh, Ryan, do you have any final thoughts? Any moments you want to you want to get to? No, I just think it's interesting how bare bones it is in general while not having a ton of dialogue, not having a ton of this or that. Every single thing is memorable there. I have multiple lines of dialogue written down. That's got to be more than like, you know, it's got to be end up being 50% because the lines are so deliberate and so, you know, well done. Uh, just like even for entertainment purposes, but it's it's that across the board. It's this it's the score. It's how everything's shot. It's everything seems to have a very specific purpose and kind of nails it for me uh, in this movie. Yeah, but, it's a ticking clock movie, which is really impressive from someone who like they didn't have a ton of money to work with. <laughs> is there is there any uh, before we move on specifically? Is there any sort of message or theme to the very end when they when the cops save them and all three of them are holding specific things in specific ways? Is that alluding to anything particular? Or is it just oh uh, like a nice shot because you've got. You've got Wilson holding a blunt object. You've got Bishop with a rifle and you've got Lee with a pistol, but they're all holding it very deliberately. It's it's like a very unique kind of ending shot. It feels like it's, it's supposed it's to be mimicking John something Ford or Howard Hawks. Like it's it's very like it, it's very like a um, like an uh, iconic sort of thing where like these guys that created our image of the West, our modern image of the West. Were modeling themselves after um, photographs of the West, many of which were criminals or cow- just cowboys who wanted to look cool, um, paying someone to take a photo of them posing. Um, so that's why there's so many cool photos of like cowboys standing or cow- or, or a, a bunch of people standing around the corpse of their dead friend uh, from the era um, because they were like, we need to capture this moment of all of us together one last time. Um, and and that, that's what it reminds me of is these strange old shots of a bunch of cowboy gangs posing together. And then the History Channel will cut away and be like, uh, this guy was dead six months later. This guy was dead six years later this guy uh was murdered on the day of his his daughter's birth like (laughs) that's what it reminds me of me but like i yeah i don't know if there's like any specific sort of symbolism to to what they're holding but there it does it is a powerful limit for me the movie is very much about silence and sustained moments it's a movie of tension and uh this this movie doesn't get much credit uh as a horror movie but i, w- I want to hold it as one uh the ga- i mentioned earlier the gang sort of has a michael myers energy they're sort of silently operating their horror um on our protagonists they're not communicating their individual motivations um and to them it doesn't matter they don't need you to know the only time they ever really communicate is they throw out the, the in quotes, cholo um, death threat where they said, we're going to come at you as hard as we fucking can. And it's going to happen. You can shoot us dead and the gang's still going to come after you. And this movie is, is this sort of silence and silence through music is what makes it so powerful for me. So John Carpenter's score, he has a lot of amazing little melodies, uh, some of them lifted from other songs. Um and he also does the Halloween like pre-Halloween. He does the Halloween like sustained notes that, like that sort of like uh, tones. Um, 
and, and he uses limited tracks or instruments or whatever you want to call it to accomplish his goal. There'll be like a sort of beat, um, like a 808 style beats. Um, there'll be there'll be solid beats uh, and then uh, sort of keyboard melodies stacked on top of it. And it all kind of leads back into my feelings about what the movie is saying about um, austerity measures. So it's a very austere film itself. But I think that that austerity leads to the fact that I think it is a movie about austerity measures. I think it's a movie about underfunding communities. And these communities are racked by poverty. They're racked by abandonment. You can see it in John Carpenter's uh, cinematography. He shoots this gorgeous, it's like my favorite shit, these gorgeous wide open shots of a sun-bleached L.A. In those shots, he he tried to capture a lot of South Central L.A. He was trying to avoid sort of the more, uh, what's associated with L.A., which is like the sort of a grandeur, the big mansions in the Hollywood Hills and such. He wanted to show um, these communities that, that poverty has just destroyed. And what that turns it into is like a very interesting sort of social horror movie for me. When the gang finally does take its vengeance on the cops, it's it's very supernatural. The silent the the the, the silencers are supernatural to me. And part of that is is knowing that that's not how suppressors work in real life. They're not that quiet. Um, it's more like people won't hear you in the next valley over. It's not that people won't hear you, you know, within three miles. But his uh, his commitment. Uh, to that sort of silent attack and then the way that the individual weapons cut through the sonic editing of uh, the the attack scenes and the, the sort of shot composition of the attack scenes is incredibly powerful. And, and the way that this sort of ravaging, beautiful, squibby power of the silencer attack uh, comes upon the cops, it, it feels like a wave. It feels like it feels like a wave of energy is coming on them. It doesn't feel like they're just getting shot at. Um, it's not just about just like a cacophony of sound. John Carpenter is interested in silence and the tension that comes from silence um, or if not ap- absolute silence, silence in the midst of a sustained note. Um, and I love the way that like Julie dies. That's, uh, that's, uh, Nancy Keys, um, who will be in Halloween. She's just sort of, they just sort of discover her dead. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's sort of the movie actually making a break from horror movies in a sense. Everybody that fights back lives through those initial attacks. But you know who doesn't? The person panicking and hiding in the corner. So don't be a coward. Is John Carpenter's ultimate message, which is, is actually in a weird way reconnecting with horror movies, because the he he in many ways created the final girl with Laurie Strode, and the final girl was strong, stood up for herself, um, and was able to sort of overcome Michael Myers time and time again, um, and so that sort of empowerment disempowerment arc makes it into a horror movie, but it's also about silence versus explosions of sound. And the, the, the silence that comes between them. And that's why I think it's such a, a magnanimous movie, because it, it, it knows when to put the pressure on, to put the tension on, and when to release that tension um, in every kind of way, both visually and uh, in terms of sound design. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, perfect final thoughts. Perfect uh, encapsulation of what why these like early John Carpenter movies ended up being template movies for so many people and still represent kind of the best example of their respective like mini genres that so many people 
took from. They're just like he are, he made a template. He made the perfect version. <laughs> we talked we talked about that a lot with Night of the Living Dead too. Like Night of the Living Dead is and uh, Dawn of the Dead to some extent too. Are like they're still the best zombie movies. There's not better zombie movies. <laughs> There's a ton of riffs on zombie movies, but the reason why that it has um you know just continue to multiply and some are like pretty strict like constru- constructionists when it comes to the zombie movie and some are are really you know liberal and going out and fast zombies disease zombies blah blah uh, my daughter right now is obsessed with a zombie musical on Disney plus where the zombies are just in high school and they learn how to dance together like <laughs> you know a lot of different ways that you can go with zombie movies but um yeah, the reason it can't be talked, topped is that, like, it, it's a template because it, it was kind of perfect the first time out. And I think a lot of John Carpenter's movies, Halloween, The Thing, uh, you know, are just so good, so lean and so perfect that it, it does leave a lot of space for people that want to take it and jump off from it while still being the best example of itself. So, uh, really quick, we're going to talk. We're not going to spend too much time on it. We will, All three of us watched the 2005 remake partially because I had said to Peter – Hey, I kind of remember the 2005 remake being good, which, full disclosure, as I said, I saw Assault on Precinct 13 about six, seven years ago. Um, so, and I saw the, the 2005 version when it came out, but hadn't seen it since. I remembered it being pretty good. Uh, so here's my take. I know from looking at Peter's letterbox notes, he disagrees with this take. But my take is, um, if you consider Assault on Precinct 13 a remake in name only. This 100% feels like another script grafted onto with the title, with the only essentially common ele- element is an assault on a police station that's going to be shut down the next day, and a cop and a criminal that ultimately need to work together to uh, survive that assault. I think that Assault on Precinct 13 is a pretty good and enjoyable uh, 2000-era B-action movie, which, in fairness, is a notoriously dead zone for good <laughs> good movies in general. <laughs> like, go look at, at 2005 at the box office. You'll find 10 movies that are good, period. It, uh, yeah. it was a weird stretch of time. Now, really quickly, I'll give you guys your thoughts. The plot of this movie is a little bit different. Ethan Hawke plays... Um, our, our lieutenant, um, he used to be undercover uh, for drug bust. It, it just has a lot more plot, a lot more talkative stuff. Uh, his He ended up getting all his partners killed. Now he's kind of this stuffy, non-action-oriented uh, police sergeant he, or uh, lieutenant. He's watching this police station, which has a lot of inner drama from, like, uh, Drea DiMatteo from The Sopranos. Um, so And Maria Bello... Uh, is at the station too. She's a shrink that checks on Ethan Hawke because of his uh, post-traumatic stress from the incident of getting his team killed. Um, and shot in the leg. And shot in the leg, yep. I, I feel like that's not the part that he needs counseling from, but mm-hmm. you know what? I've never been shot in the leg, yeah. so I don't know. Uh, so anyway, so the, the, the crux of this movie is that there is a extremely dangerous like criminal mastermind played by Lawrence Fishburne, who is getting transported um, after getting caught. He was a cop killer. He's you find um, he is essentially um, gets gets stuck at this precinct and then they are under assault um, and they are under assault, as you find out later, again, much different from cops who've actually been working with this criminal that they want him to die because um, 
because he can basically finger that all these other cops he's been working with. Uh, the cops are led by Gabriel Byrne, who is kind of like, yeah, I – and once they realize that everyone has figured out that this is a cop, there's a dead body that gets found and someone recognizes them. Now Gabriel Byrne is like, hey, everyone in the police station needs to die to cover our tracks. As he says, for me, it's simple math, um, the livelihoods of 33 cops as opposed to the livelihood of five cops. Um so they uh, they eventually kind of did the same thing. Ja Rule, uh, John Leguizamo, our criminals, along with uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, you know, they, they it's it's a longer movie, so there's more shootouts, more back and forth. They try escapes. Some characters die. Uh, the, I, the shocking death is Maria Bello, who like you yeah. kind of think is going to get away and then get shot in the head. That's I mean. Um, and then eventually they kind of escape, and there's a forest shootout and. Uh, Unlike in the original, uh, Ethan Hawke does survive, uh, along with uh, Drea Di uh, Matteo, but uh, Lawrence Fishburne gets away, and Ethan Hawke's like, hey, if I ever see you again, we're really going to go at it this time, just me and you, because uh, we had to be friends to get through this. And th- and that's what I mean. Like, It's not a great movie. No, and it's, it's definitely, not. And it's definitely, as a... <laughs> As a remake of the original Solemn Precinct 13, like, it's throwing out too many important elements of that while making it overly complicated and some laughable stuff. But, like, I do, like, it does it does work for me just as, like, a dumb action movie. Like, I would watch it again. It is enjoyable. I think, uh, again, the, the actor, it has a lot of really fun actors in parts. Like, the couple twists, like the fact that these are all cops... It's sometimes even more fun if you've just watched Assault on Precinct 13. Like, uh, it's like, oh, shit. Like, they're really going in a totally different direction. Uh, Maria Bello's death was extremely shocking. Um, It has a lot of, like, well-directed action scenes and stuff like that. Like, it, yeah, it is definitely one of those those movies where if you say, as, as a remake to... Uh, John Carpenter's movie, it's garbage and it's not close to that and it's missing all the important stuff and is is exactly why people dislike remakes. If you forget that John Carpenter's exists, it's it's a lot of fun. I I actually really like it. <laughs> I watched them back to back, which uh, inherently biases my opinion. I did too. I, I, I thought it was I thought it was horrendous, man. Like, I, I remember really liking it in junior high or high school, and I think I watched it with... Ryan, we definitely watched this movie yeah. together, right? We Yeah, we definitely did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 100%. Because it was an action movie in 2005, which was also when Ryan and I were like, well, we're watching all the Japanese movies because nothing that's coming out in theaters right now is really interesting us, so we're going to oh, watch yeah. Battle what Royale. A, I went and looked back at the box office. What a weird fucking, like, era. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, like, to me, um, it's an insanely overqualified cast. Gabriel Byrne plays the villain, which sounds so exciting until you see the movie. Lawrence Fishburne uh, plays the, uh, you know, anti-hero of it, and he's the best part of the movie by far. Lawrence Fishburne he's, is he's really good. always fucking game. He's, so, he's really good in this movie. Ryan, do you remember the, the action movie we watched with Thomas Jane and uh, Lawrence Fishburne, where it's just those two having a... Is it called Standoff? I think it is called Standoff, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say those two. Uh, they uh, they have a standoff. What do you call the movie? Just you two. Just that's it. Yeah. But the point is that that movie was probably made for a quarter of uh, of what this movie was made for. And Lawrence Fishburne is yeah. This, this movie's budget was three, uh, not three hundred, <laughs> three hundred million. Dollars. It was, it was thirty million dollars. Um, yeah. Standoff was probably made for a sixth of that. Um, 
So, uh, and, and the point, the reason I bring it up is because Lawrence Fishburne is always committed, no matter what level of trash he's at, and I love that. It was also, like, I remember at the time, and it still was now, like, because of The Matrix, he was, like, playing these very, like... <sighs> You know, we talked about this when we did our Matrix episode last year, but, like, Morpheus's dialogue would be extremely boring to have to listen to. It's so much exposition, which you do need in that movie. It's not a criticism of the movie. The reason it works is because it's coming out of Lawrence Fishburne's mouth. Like, you have someone who can't make every sentence sing that is, like, tough sentences to sing, and um, the movie suffers greatly. So, like... But because of that, it, f- it felt like and that he was cast in a lot of those roles. Like, we need, like, a super fatherly figure to de- to deliver tough lines. Like, that's our guy. And and maybe some of that is to Event Horizon. Like, he, he's good in Event Horizon, but he definitely plays a thankless role in Event Horizon compared to, like, Sam Neill and some of the other characters that get to have a little bit more fun. So, it is fun. It was fun. And I st- still think it is fun to see him as, like... Uh, the evil asshole who like still is smart he will do what he needs to do to survive but he definitely has a menace to him that's palpable he balances the the movie out in a way that like the movie does not deserve but essentially the cast is incredibly over- overqualified Brian Dennehy uh, plays an old I'm an old I'm one of the old He's, I'm not dying for you, Ethan Hawke. <laughs> I'm not dying for anyone. Or as he uh, refers to uh, the just the inmates, you're gonna trust these freaks? And I'm like, <laughs> they didn't do anything. They're just they're just prisoners. I think in the original script he said something racist, and then uh, when they were editing the movie together, they were like, maybe just maybe just not. That, do you think someone who looks sense. like Brian Dennehy and is playing an old corrupt Detroit cop is gonna be like? Yeah, those guys in the cell, you know what I really call them? Knuckleheads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you got, yeah, you got Ligazamo. Johnny Legs is in it, which is, a you know, uh, between us three. We're fans. We're fans of Johnny Legs. Big guy. Where, where have you gotten that? I specifically talked about Land of the Dead, how much I dislike John Ligazamo. Yeah, you know, Aaron, I, I, I'm just trying to forget. Oh, okay. see, my notes, I have the Zamo and exclamation point, so <laughs> I'm on board. Yeah, uh, yeah. I like, I think Legazamo has gotten better. Um, but this is like his worst time, and I think the character he plays so, here is terrible. He's, like, he's, where he's just so like, poorly scripted. Yeah. But that was, like, his thing, right? Like, he just... They gave him thankless roles, and he chewed scenery, and it wasn't good oh. scenery chewing, and so, it's like... It's so much. He, it's all he's doing is just chomping yeah. scenery. It's beautiful. Yeah, so, so he, had a, he had a bad stretch there. And Ethan... Um, uh, so, e- Ethan Hawke is clearly in a post-training day thing where he's, he's playing... He's good, though. Like, he, he's so natural. Like, he is yeah. one of our most naturalistic a- actors, yeah, he's I think. Good. He, he's good. I like him. Yeah. yeah, he's good. He's good. He's not. He's not. A, he's definitely not on the, the you know the cons side of this list. Um, I would say Maria Bello is firmly on the cons side of this list, even though I love her. Well, uh, also I think she's terrible in this movie, but I do like the scene where she gets. Normally, I wouldn't like really cheer for like oh the scene where she gets the we think is going to be a main character gets shot in the head, um, but it is truly shocking. Like I was not expecting that I- moment, even upon rewatch. I was going to say, I really enjoyed the very opening scene with Ethan Hawke. I thought that he 
I thought that there was like some legitimate acting there when you could have definitely phoned it in for just like the intro minute. You know what I mean? Like he could have just been like, ooh, I'm undercover, whatever. But it's like, all right, he was clearly going for it. It yeah. was interesting. Yeah. It feels like a training day thing where he's like, I'm going to the grimy side of, of this sort of this sort of depiction. Um, him and I, I love the depiction of him as like this sort of beaten, snow buried uh, he's Detroit in this movie. He's this sort of like beaten, snow buried kind of character who's like trying to connect with humanity. He's finding little moments where he can like you know uh, sexually harass his coworkers. Um, and he uh, <laughs> and he's like an underachiever, so he's he's relatable for you know almost everybody. He, he runs this sort of fucky precinct as this like demotion, like he, and watching that operation fuck up at the beginning is like makes you endeared to him because like he's really going for it and it does not go well. Um, so I think Ethan Hawke is good. I'll go back to that. Yeah, he's he's good. I think the weather. I just mentioned the weather. The double siege is a cool idea. Um, the idea that like uh, it's just snow bounding them and also yeah. a, a shooting gang outside that's cool mm-hmm. um, Maria Bello I, I, I don't think we touched on this has an incredibly um, offensive uh, character um, who uh, has OCD so she just has to keep counting all the time to Oh, I oh yeah, I even tuned that. that. I, I tuned that out too. I, t- I totally tuned that. Out. I forgot it's that. Was- str- and she does it during an action scene where they're trying to hotwire a car or something. Um, it's it, it's it's totally a um, it's totally a Tropic Thunder moment where you're like, oh, you went like too hard into yeah. this. She's like shouting numbers at the woman just trying. Her, her to- whole character. I mean, yeah, you're right. Her whole character is terrible. Like I said, like the I made the joke earlier, right? Let's be super brave and make some changes to this. How about all white cops and all black? Like it sucks. Like all that stuff sucks, but it sucks in comparing it to a better movie. Like if you just take this as like uh, the way they made Die Hard Three, which was supposed to be a Lethal Weapon movie, and then they slapped Die Hard's name on it when they no one it was well it was supposed to be a movie called Simon Says. Just watched then, it the other day. It's a yeah, but that's what it was. Book. Yeah, it's a good movie, but that's a really good example of like it feels like when you watch that movie, it you're like, oh, I could see how this was supposed to be a Lethal Weapon movie, right? As opposed to a as a Die Hard movie. Yeah, and like watching this, I feel like oh, someone wrote this script and someone went, this is like really close to Assault on Precinct 13. And so, like, instead of calling it fucking standoff, why don't we just get the rights to to, to make a remake of... Like, that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. I, think, I agree. Like I think it fails... Oh, sorry, go on, Ryan. No, I was going to say, I agree, but I also... Uh, I agree with both of you. I agree that it feels departed enough with the opening scene with Ethan Hawke, with his drug dealer, and all these other things where it's, it's fleshing out the characters somewhat, but it's also steering the focus enough. So now, all of a sudden, it's a character-driven story... And there are enough changes where it does feel different, except for it's a siege on a precinct. Um, yeah. But I also other agree. Than that, it's, and then and other than that and the cop and, and criminal teaming up, it's all different. There's yeah. Like nothing else. But I also agree with Peter that it's not good. So, you know, they're, they're, those are <laughs> oh, the I wanted you things. to I wanted you to agree with me on one more thing. <laughs> those are those are the two main things. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's a far more conservative film. Um, the, yeah. the, the Maria Bello and um, Drea De Matteo, um, she they're both sort of awful 
um, ineffectual women stereotypes. Like neither of yeah. them gets to be particularly part of the movie. Mm-hmm. So though Maria Bello's murder is shocking, it's also like, well, shit, what if she got to be the hero? Like in the original movie, Laurie Zimmer, there's two, there's two characters, right? There's, there, there's one, one lady is panicking and having a freak out, which, Julie. you know, is fine. Julie. Uh, and then the other one, uh, Laurie Zimmer, uh, is playing a Howard Hawksian type woman, a, a strong, stoic woman who knows what she wants and she's going for it. And yeah, she's, she's, she's Angie Dickinson. Yes, it's great. It's great. Um, in this movie, there's no there's no Hawksian woman. There's just panicking women. And it's pretty offensive and conservative in a way for a movie that like, what is it? Uh, 24 plus f- 29 years later uh, to have such a regressive depiction yeah yeah i mean it's definitely less progressive than a movie shot 30 years later yeah and the cops versus crooks so okay the first the the original movie doesn't really have much of a cops versus crooks discussion there's there's little unspoken moments where they're hesitating giving the the criminals guns Uh, i love i love when he chucks in the shotgun he shoots the guys coming through and then all of a sudden he realizes he just chucked the inmate the shotgun like there's a that's a fantastic scene where they're just like frozen a little bit like oh wait i just armed you the need to find the moment whereas in this they keep returning to the cops versus criminals thing and for a movie that is whatever 15 20 minutes longer than the original it feels so much heavier and more cumbersome and they keep returning to the they keep returning to the cops versus criminal discussion and every time they never develop it out anymore it's just like brian dead he's like i don't like it look i agree with you it's it's definitely not as good as it does the thing i call cast gapping where they use an overqualified charismatic actors to fill in script gaps um well they don't have any directed or written sort of import to them like i think that's why b movie is appropriate like one of the things that like i know b movies sometimes use derogatory i think for my like headcanon one of the ways i describe it is like good action maybe good actors bad characterizations right like the scriptwriter knew how to get some good scenes in there and get some good twists in there but like that you're not watching this and and recognizing the the humanizing components or of bigger themes that like you get from assault on precinct 13 or other john carpenter movies right like you are watching it only because it does cool shit and uh the people in the movie are fun to watch and that's like that's as high as it can really rise. And I just think on those terms, like it has like, I love the icicle stab. I love the scene where they turn off the lights to hide and all of a sudden realize there's laser sights pointed into like every room. There are so many laser sights. I know like, but it like they, it has a lot of well-directed scenes. It has fun twists. It has like, I I don't um, think it has a lot of well-directed scenes. I agree. I think I think the action scenes are well done. I have I icicle so. typed out, but e y e sickle in my notes if that helps you. <laughs> my my issue the 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 best like well that's just accuracy. I know it? the the when we're talking about dialogue just in general, when Ligazamo is they're still in the prison, they're they're still locked up, and he explains to Ethan Hawke, he's like, you can't just leave us in here as live bait, man. You gotta let us go. You gotta like these guys are gonna kill us. He seems to understand the full array of what's going on and then literally the next scene is ethan hawk's character arming them and leguizamo's character saying uh why should i help why should i help or tell me why i should help your skinny white ass and like that in a nutshell is why it's so confused like it would be confusing for anybody's opinion in this matter to be like why should i help you the, the options are to get shot by police or 
try and help, but also to have the same character who just essentially said, you have to let us out. We're more than just criminals. We can help you. And then immediately say, well, why should I help you? Like, it, it, it's all very clunky and bizarre on top of the other characters that are poorly written between, like you were saying, Dre D'Amato, who's Mateo, who goes between, man, I wish I could smoke a cigarette, but I just decided to stop because it's New Year's, which, sure, when you're, yeah, when you're getting you're shot at. you're about to die, have, have the cigarette. It, Look, absolutely. here's the thing. You you're, you don't need to keep selling. Like I know it's not a good movie. Oh no, uh, I wasn't even harping on you specifically. I just meant in general. It, it, it's I I think I wanted to like. I remember liking it back in the day, watching it. Uh, but but no, I, I just too. I just couldn't really. It didn't really click with me. There are too many annoying people, and and like you kind of mentioned when you said Gabriel Byrne showed up on on the screen, I was like very excited i was like okay great he can be even like subtly menacing that'll be awesome and then he's essentially just non-stop exposition i mean he every time it cuts to him he's just like well the reason why i justify these murders are because of this and you're like okay great i guess uh, all right that's fantastic get to do cool villainy shit except for when he kills maria bello and then his like co-cop is like i don't know if you had to go that far or something i don't know oh right right sorry i thought i I was picturing him pulling her out of the car i was like i didn't think that was him you're right yeah sorry my bad yeah there's there's but it's an inherently more conservative movie because the original movie is about Mm. and i mean conservative in a political sense not at all economy of scale this movie is a way more bloated uh way more bloated film um the corrupt that is a sort of an argument that the corrupt cops are just like bad eggs and the and the regular cops are just they're good cops they're completely separated from all this corruption. Like, there's no reason. There's no reason for you know. Ethan Hawke just has to get on the straight and narrow, and then he could go back to being a good cop. And then this, he'll be what the city deserves. If he like, pours out those pills on the bathroom floor for some reason, yeah, he'll be one of God. the good guys. There's one really great moment of characterization in it, and it's um, it's it's a straight up Game of Thrones level thing. Where my favorite moments in all of Game of Thrones are when they take two characters that have no business talking, but they're in a situation where they have to talk. Yeah, uh, and that's where uh, the Hound and Arya, like that's like that that's that's what Game of Thrones excels at, right? Mm-hmm. And this movie has a cool little um, a, a, a cool little montage of two man crews, all of them mismatched, having little conversations, and like Johnny Legs and Ethan Hawke are comparing drug notes. And then Ethan Hawke was apparently taking Adderall to wake up in the morning, and then he would take like some sort of opioids or something to chill out during the day. Um, <laughs> Which is like, that's a great little moment. And it shows you that the movie doesn't actually like, it doesn't desire this disconnect. It's just self-conscious about there not being enough conflict within the department. Or maybe that the exterior conflict isn't sound enough. And and it gets very self-conscious and very unconfident. Whereas the original is so goddamn confident. It's just like... It, we know we can grab your ass. We don't need to throw in a bunch of of pointless manufactured drama here. There's gonna be oh, there's gonna be a third Mexican standoff. Thank you, movie. We really needed one more moment where Brian Denny he goes like, "I told you not to trust them." I liked the scene where it was like a montage of them pairing off. I thought that was it was a, a very immediate change of pace and interesting. But my one major issue with that is they go from. A Mexican standoff number two, three, whatever, which one it is at this point. And Ja Rule literally takes Maria Bello's character as like hostage in it. And then it cuts to these scenes and they're hanging out together. And he's like, yeah, you're you're a Capricorn. And she's like, wow, you are good. Because, of course, he's just talking about their horoscopes. But like, I was like, I don't think she'd be all 
like, oh, man, you are good at knowing stuff about... You're like, no, she'd be like, you just were pointing... You were just holding me hostage, like, five minutes ago. Somebody who has a disorder that's defined by anxiety over a lack of control. Yeah. People were pointing guns, and you were... You grabbed me and pointed a gun at my head, and now we're just hanging out in a room alone, just, like, chumming it up. You're like, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay, so, like, a lot of action movies are just about... Let's talk about it just as an action movie. Is that does that work for everyone? Sure. Um, action movies are just about seeing people look cool very often, but badass actions I think need impact, and that's my problem with it as an action movie is that I don't feel like very many scenes have impact. Like even the scene where where Lawrence Fishburne throws a fucking two Molotovs at a guy. And it's supposed to be this beautiful slow-mo moment. The guy survives. He jumps out the window and then jumps in the snow. <laughs> and I was also confused. I was like, why would your go-to weapon? Because that's what he grabs when he has all of the options. He grabs two bottles. You're you're in in a building. You're stuck in a building. Why would your option be, okay, I'm gonna get firebombs? You're like, that's gonna yeah. that's gonna turn against you pretty quick. I, I did think that the scene where Ligazamo uh takes his sword and stabs the guy or whatever. Yes. And and uh Somebody else is helping him beat him up. Yeah, John Roll jumps in too. And Maria Bello is stuck in the corner and kind of shocked. That scene was good. That was like a good scene because you're like, oh, yeah, she she didn't sign up for this. Yeah. And like a guy's literally getting butchered in front of her. Just like, that OK, was. there you go. That that actually, like you said, had weight, had some ramifications, had reason and looked looked cool. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. It has dramatic impact. But it is, you know, my thing is that like I'm not trying to convince you guys i'm not even saying you guys are wrong like when these kind of like b action movies it's like how many movies have you been recommended by people that are like you know what's actually pretty good that jason statham death sentence movie or like some random sylvester stallone movie from the the 90s and you're like you know yeah maybe you end up enjoying it maybe you don't end up enjoying it it probably doesn't meet the definition of good or even a lot of other things but sometimes you there's like these these kind of like well this isn't well written and it has a lot of silly moments and a lot of thought didn't go into it but ultimately i enjoy it for these reasons and this is one of those movies that like we'd never cover on the, on the show because <laughs> Do you see her and why I didn't want to do a separate episode? No, yeah. No, it it totally makes sense. Like, yeah, because it's like, it's one of the things where it's like, yep, it's not a good movie. I enjoy it. And you guys are like, yeah, it's not a good movie. I don't enjoy it. And I'm like, yeah, no, all that makes sense. (laughs) We're in agreement about the general quality of the movie while stating. And also, I look, the other thing that I just think it does have going for it, go type in good zero zero S's action movies in to Google and Look at the shit it, like, pumps out. And not that there wasn't good action movies, especially when you start getting to, like, The Raid, but, like, 2000 to 2009, like, post-Matrix, post, um, no one, no one was doing, like, the, the Schwarzenegger, Stallone-type action movies. Like, there is just a dearth of, like, these, low, these you know, $20 million, $30 million gun action movie-type stuff where it, it – at the time it kind of felt fun to have one again um and uh yeah i i don't think we've ever truly like returned to this era of like every every well an action movie is going to make twice its budget so all we need to do is put some actors some guns an okay plot and give it a budget of 20 million dollars and it's going to make it like this feels a little bit like a last of its of its of its era type stuff and a holdover that still is from my perspective very very watchable while also 
uh, recognizing that it is a genre that died for reasons that a lot of people didn't put a lot of effort into it and put Gabriel Burns for him to have one good line delivery yeah. and stuff like and that. And I, so, I, would, I would agree with you that like this sort of ac- – uh, this kind of action movie that, that – you know I don't think this movie is impactful but let's say hypothetically I did. Um, that this sort of impactful, strong action movie that you, you want to watch the stunts, all that. It did disappear but it didn't disappear entirely. Um, and it's still not really there. You, you think about John, the John Wick movies and Atomic Blonde and some of the stuff that sort of spun yeah. off of it. And you're like, you're like, oh, those movies are amazing. But like, there's not that many in between. No. And the Marvel movies aren't really like, apart from like Black Panther, there's not really like a, a whole lot of Marvel movies that fill this void either. And even like the other action movies, like a Jack Reacher, it's like, we're going to, we're going to do it on this star. Like it does miss the days of like, hey, most of these stars can't open a th- $30 million movie, but it, what if we get five of them? Yeah, but they do exist. Um, but they yeah. exist in an indie scene and they in- exist internationally, right? You mentioned the raid earlier. Yep. It, uh, Indonesia, Japan, mainland China, Hong Kong, um, even some awesome like European movies. Like for some reason, France has an amazing action movie scene. This director is French, by the way, but France has a really great action movie scene. Um, and then uh, a whole other genre that we haven't really touched on as much, but I would love to spend more time on, which is DTV action movies, particularly like anything Scott yeah. Atkins has been in, which is something that Ryan and I became obsessed with after college when we were uh, we were uh, spending a lot of time drinking in basements. But uh, we also spent a lot of time watching Scott Atkins movies and uh, particularly like the two Universal Soldiers movies. And so those movies do exist, but they're being made on an indie scale or they're being made in internationally and then like yeah. we occasionally and that's why the john wick movies stand out so profoundly it's because they're kind of in a vacuum a little bit yeah and there's just not i mean in general that we've talked so much about how there's not really like the mid-budget like the, the equivalent of this would be a 50 million dollar budgeted movie with like five <laughs> you people jack you reacher kind of- that's it <laughs> But that doesn't work too because that is banking on Tom Cruise. There's no Tom Cruise yeah, in this movie. Yeah. You need like you need like Ed Helms. You need like the Hangover level stars before the Hangover, all in a fifty million dollar action movie, and then you have the equivalent. I mean, so anyways, I, I think happen. it's a fun throwback. Uh, it's I would recommend watching the original. <laughs> um, uh, case closed. Yeah. But one final note on this. One final note on this. If they remade Assault on Precinct 13 now again, uh, it would be 15 minutes long because they arm police departments so insanely now after the Iraq War. <laughs> <laughs> that now that they would be like oh no we're surrounded well get in the apc and uh you can get on the 50 cal and then you can get on the other apc actually um they're no, like they oh the no we're getting shut down which means we don't have our complement of 20 bazookas just five <laughs> good thing we wi- we wired the street with ieds just in case for this one yeah. scenario <laughs> Patriot Act, bitches. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, we uh, we had two more of these left. We have we're doing uh, Green Room with a friend of the show and lives in the same city as Ryan, Bill Fox, Bill Fox, and then uh, Peter. We're wrapping it up with VFW, as we already said, with uh, one of your friends, uh, Sohil. Yeah, Sohil's going to be on for VFW. Very excited to watch that one. And uh, as we said, that's a very recent movie, so. 
Yeah, but VFW is supposedly very much inspired by uh, Assault on Precinct 13. So uh, very yeah. excited to, to see. But it's with oldies. With. But Assault on Precinct 13, but they're all old. It's like uh, the Space Cowboys of Assault at Precinct 13 <laughs> yeah. ripoff. It's Wild Hogs. It's uh, the Grand Torino of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, yes, yeah, so join us next week. Green Room is a great movie and a very fun episode as we continue uh, Peter's Friends and Family Month. I mean, sorry, uh, Under Siege Month. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)